easiest of them all because he eats these people. Um, yeah, he eats them. It's played by Anthony Hopkins, and, and, and I don't know if any Jeffrey Dahmer reader in here, but if you like real true stories that are really true, you can look up Jeffrey Dahmer, but I'm not sure where he is. So anyway, you can see the difference I can read it. But um, so Hannibal Lecter is played by Anthony Hopkins, and then the officer Starling is played by Jodie Foster. And you remember the scene, if you saw, it doesn't matter if you didn't, he's in a cave, and he's in the middle of this room, and the lights are kind of dark and all that, and Jodie Foster, Officer Starling, comes in and, and asks, is there, starts to talk to him, and, and says to him, just says, what happened to you? And when she says what happened to you, she's not just asking her question, but in her voice, in her character, is kind of the modern view of the world the intelligent intellectual modern view of the world that says what happened to you see the the evil the it's not in you something must have happened to you you know like what messed you up and and i want to get it right so so he he looks at her and and he says this nothing happened to me officer starling i happened you can, this is Hannibal Lecter talking. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil, Officer Starling. Nothing is anyone's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. And you stand to say I'm evil. And, and what the, the, the film is doing there is challenging the modern worldview that says human beings are basically good. And, it's, it's, and Hannibal Lecter is saying, you are terribly naive. You've got no category for me. The modern world has no, solu- it has no way of correctly identifying the problem what's wrong with the world because they've written off evil. They've written off personal evil. But you can't say that about the Bible. The Bible has an answer to Hannibal Lecter. The Bible has categories to describe what's wrong with the human race and what's wrong with us personally, what's wrong with the world. That's what we're going to look tonight is, is in Genesis 3. Uh, we'll have the verses up on the screen in a second, but not quite yet. But, but, but let's set up. Okay, so what's happened? Well, God's created the world. Uh, he's called it all good. God's created Adam and Eve, and, and they're good, right? And then Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 ends, okay, so now the verse, uh, it ends, I'm not going to not admit the verse anyway, uh, it ends with this, Adam and Eve, I'm sorry, Adam and his wife, that's Eve, were both naked and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The 
lots we could point out, but we're just going to try to keep it simple tonight. So, so let's start with this. Um, he says, God doesn't want you to eat the fruit, because if you do, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, Eve and Adam, too, they, they want to be like God. They want to, that power to know good and evil. But, but there's two different ways to know good and evil. It's like cancer. You can know cancer like an oncologist knows cancer. So an oncologist, uh, a medical doctor, has studied cancer, has researched it, has treated patients. Or you can know cancer like a cancer patient. It's, it's cancer is eating away your body. So Adam and Eve want to know good and evil like God does. But when they rebel against God and eat the forbidden fruit, they know good and evil, not like God does, but like Satan does. And that's the condition we all find ourselves in. Like the cancer patient knows cancer, so we know sin and evil like Satan does. And that's directly connected to something I hope you saw when we read the verses. At the end of chapter 2, it says they were naked and unashamed. After they've rebelled against God, they're naked and trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. Why? Why were they naked and unashamed and now they're trying to cover themselves with fig leaves? It has nothing to do with being physically naked. It's not like they just go, oh, you're naked for the first time, right? This is talking about nothing physical but emotional, psychological, moral, spiritual nakedness. They are ashamed. They were naked and unashamed. Now they're ashamed at who they are. Because they have sinned, they are exposed, and they're uncomfortable with it. See, the reality is that, that, that nakedness isn't the problem. It's the guilt and the shame and the inadequacy that they feel about themselves now. And now they start to cover themselves up with fig leaves. Before sin, they weren't guilty. And so they could be naked and ashamed before God and before each other. But now when sin comes into the world, they run from God and hide from each other. They hide behind these fig leaves they have. And we have done Because of sin, because of guilt, because of condemnation, and because of shame, we try to hide ourselves. The reality is that all of us know there's something wrong with us. The reality is that we don't even always like ourselves very much. No, we try to cover ourselves up. Why don't you like it when people ask you personal questions? What is it about you that, that likes to keep people a little bit at arm's length away? Why do we call people nosy or prying? It's because we don't want people to get too close to us, right? We want to keep people back. It's true physically, a physical space, right? You, you know any close talkers? Look, I'm going to try and tell, right? A close talker. I'm not a big fan of close talkers. I was a college student, there was this guy named Chris, he was a good guy, I mean, super great guy, but he was a close talker, and he'd always just keep getting closer and closer to me, and I'm like, this guy, you got to take him daily. I mean, it's not like you're of a different nationality, this is not a cultural difference we're making, right? And if it is, I double the space, so stay away, uh, and and just talk over there. But I realized one time we were down in Brewer, and we were 
waiting to play basketball, waiting to pick up the next game. And we were literally at one end of the court on the baseline waiting, and she just kept walking. It, by the end, you're at the other end of the baseline. And so I, whenever I told her, Chris, I just took her like one foot out and then stepped back. And I was like, this is my wall. You're not getting past this. I, don't, don't be a close talker. So, so, so what happens is just like close talkers, we don't like that or I don't like it. Maybe you do. But, but so, so we don't like people too close to us in other ways. Sometimes uh, people ask, you know, what's the hardest thing about being a pastor? And I'm sure they, they think it's, you know, I don't know, some counseling thing. None of those are even in the top hundred. The, the, the weirdest thing about being a pastor of, of a church the size of Crossing in the city the size of Columbia is that whenever I go anywhere, people know me, and I don't know them. And that's weird, right? I'm sitting at High V today, and some guy comes up and knows my name and knows all this stuff about me. And I'm like, that's weird. Um, we were on vacation one time down in Alabama, and, and my stewardess said, you know, I bet you this, everywhere we go, somebody knows Chad. And doggone it, we're playing in the stands, and somebody comes up, and, and they knew me in Alabama from because they were on vacation too, and it was just freaky. And so, like, I go to the gym, and I go to Wilson's, and people know me, but I don't, it's fine if I know you and you know me, great. We wave, we nod, we ignore each other, whatever we want to do. But but when I don't know you, and then you tell me things about, I saw you over there today in that red shirt. Well, yeah, well that's weird. Because I don't want other people watching me, because I don't want to be exposed either. So on that, John Paul Sartre, he was a, a French philosopher, um, 1900s. Uh, he writes this 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 collection of uh, this book, I guess it's called Being Nothingness, and in it there's a chapter called The Look, and, and it, it's a weird book, right? But in this one scene, he is looking through a keyhole on the lives of other people, and he's watching them, and they can't see him because he gets to see them, and everyone else can't. It's just exhilarating. It's like people watching, right? It's exhilarating. It's powerful. You know stuff about people that they can't see yours. But then he hears a noise. In this chapter, the guy hears a noise, and he realizes that there's somebody watching him through a keyhole, and it, and it literally drives him crazy. He can't stand the fact that somebody is able to watch him, and that he can't control it, and they can see everything he does. That he is completely bare and exposed. He can't cover up in front of them, not always, not all the time. So, so, so he hates that his unseen scene is being watched, being seen by an unseen seer, right? He hates it that he's doing something to other people that he loves, but now somebody's doing the same thing to him, and he just can't stand it. He can't stand it. it it's driving him absolutely crazy. And, and Sartre, says, Sartre says that he tries to use that as an, as, as an argument against God. And says, look, if God is an unseen seer and I'm exposed and seen before him, then I can't really be a, a true human being. But what Sartre kind of misses, I don't know how, but somehow he misses that he's criticizing God for the very thing he's doing to other people. He's criticizing God for the same thing. But that's you and me, right? We don't want to be seen by other people. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want anybody prying. We don't want anybody knowing our business. We put up high walls to guard ourselves. 
love to watch and look for inconsistencies in their lives, right? I mean, we love to do that. We love to put people under the microscope and check them out and to know truth about them, especially so that they don't know the truth. See, all of us are born with a sense that we're not quite right. Every person in here has a deep sense of inadequacy, a deep sense that they're not good enough, a deep sense that you don't measure up. It's not just you. It's that all of us have that. Just think, if everybody knew everything about you, wouldn't you be shocked about how petty you are? How superficial you are? Wouldn't we be shocked at how you, the kinds of things that concern you? How obsessive you are? How insecure you are? All of us, do you agree? And since we don't want people to know that about us, we cover it up. We try to watch other people, but we don't want other people to watch us. We feel better when we can see inconsistencies in other people, see their flaws, their brokenness, their whatever, as long as they can't see it back. There's something about all of us, me, I'll go me, that somehow feels better about myself when I see the failures of other people. This picture right here, this is uh, homecoming at, I hope, yes, yes, homecoming, Mizzou, 72,000 people, homecoming KU, like 12. (laughs) This is the same year, homecoming, between those two schools. And there's something about me that just likes my homecoming better when I know Kansas has sucked. I don't know. So what is it that Adam and Eve do? What is it they do when they're exposed? What is it they do when they can't deal with their inadequacy and shame? They start to cover themselves up. And what do they do? They start making fig leaves. Now, Now, what do we cover ourselves up with? What's a fig leaf? Well, God created us in his image, and we are supposed to define ourselves in relationship with God. But when sin comes, sin breaks that connection between us and God. And so then we start trying to define ourselves and get meaning and a sense of wholeness and acceptance from somewhere else. That finding it in something else, someone else, somewhere else, that's a fig leaf. So what do we do to cover up our inadequacy and our guilt and our insecurity? Well, some of us overwork. Some of us take something like uh, a school, and we just obsess over it. I don't mean doing well to honor God. I don't mean doing your best to, to, to honor God with your talents. I mean obsessing over it, worrying, fretting, letting it control you. You're riding the roller coaster up and down. Some of us do it by uh, uh, just the inability to say no, inability to, to disappoint other people. We are just so compelled to always be liked, to always be respected, to always be thought highly of, that we just can't stand it to let others know we fail. Some of us do it through through sports, the same thing, or achievement. Some of us uh, uh, won't date somebody below us. 
right? Whatever the pecking order is and however you see yourself in the pecking order, no matter if you really like someone else or you really, in some sense, are drawn to someone else, but if they're just a step below you in your mind, at least in the pecking order, you won't date because you have an image, you have a reputation. You, you have to cover yourself up with a certain kind of image that you've got to present. That's why some, some of us care so much about how we look and our appearance because our appearance has become the fig leaf that we do to hide our insecurities. That's why some people here in this room don't want to pray out loud or don't want to admit you're wrong or don't want to confess your sins to other people. Some people do religion as a way to cover up. They become obsessive about religion and do's and don'ts and rules and being the good person and being the person that serves the most and does the most and goes to the most camps and the most missions. And and, and they use religion to hide behind. Some people do it with busyness. Everybody's busy, but some people create a busyness in order to hide behind. So they don't have to deal with who they really are. You guys are probably familiar with Young Life, great Great group, great organization wherever it's found, but especially great in Columbia, I think. Uh, if you know Vigilini and Neil, they've gone to the Crossing for a long time. They're great people. He's the Young Life director here. And, and he tells a story that from a few years ago that, that I think might help us here. It, it's a story that I, I guess I've, I've never experienced we've ever been to a Young Life meeting, but I guess they have these club meetings and they're trying to make them fun. And, and so what they decided to do one night is they were going to have a pizza-themed Olympics. And so they called three different pizza places at the same time and had them deliver pizza to the club meeting, right? And so it was just this, they didn't know they were in the Olympics, the pizza people, but here they were, and they got there, and they were going to be gold, silver, and bronze. And, and so they coached the, the high school kids, and when the pizza guy comes in, everybody claps, go crazy for them, and then we're going to do a little interview, and they'll either wear gold, silver, or bronze, we'll give them a prize. And so the, the first person comes, and that's gold. And I don't remember what, which pizza establishment got which, which medal. But, and all the, all the high school kids went nuts, and they did a little interview. You know, kind of a sharp, normal guy was the delivery person, and he left. And then Luke said he was up at the door waiting, and here comes the second one. And he goes, uh-oh, because the second guy was, a, was just kind of socially awkward. And, uh, you know, just, just his appearance and his clothes. Luke, uh, uh, what are you going to do if you put this guy in front of a high school kid? Because, you know, high school kids can be cruel in these stories, can't they? Can, can be, can, 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 can be kind of cruel. And, but he, he told the guy, hey, you're in the Pizza Olympics, go downstairs. And, and the delivery driver, you know, it's a pizza delivery driver who's a little older. I think he was like 20-something, you know, so it wasn't like some high school kid's job. This is like this guy's job. And he went down there, and the high school kids went crazy. They went nuts, and they cheered for him. And, and, and Luke said, you know, the guy kind of, in the little interview thing that Luke did with him, he kind of stumbled a little bit, but he kind of did better than he thought he would. And, and so when Luke walked the guy upstairs and out, he goes, he said to him, he said, you know, what, what, what do you think about getting silver in the Pizza Olympics? And, 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 the guy, and the guy goes, you know, that was really awesome. I've never had anybody clap for me in my entire life. when he told that story, he just goes, yeah, he goes, I wonder how many people are like that. I wonder how many people would say, I've never had anybody that really knew me clap for me in my entire life. 
because I think that that awkward, socially awkward, 20-something, wrinkled, not the sharpest-looking guy, pizza delivery driver, in a sense represents all of us, that we would love for people to really see us and know us, wrinkles, warts, zits, you know, all the awkwardness that we really are inside and outside, and to know that they really like us anyway. This flaps for us. But the story of the Bible is that there is one who does flap. And that's Jesus. See, Genesis 3 doesn't just tell us about the problem, but it starts to give us a hint about the solution to our problem. In Genesis 3, uh, verse 21, if we just go down a few verses, we find this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So picture this. They're, they're exposed. They're naked. They're ashamed. They're guilt. They're inadequate. They're making fig leaves. Again, a metaphor for how they're trying to hide behind overwork and achievement and all these things that we're doing to hide. And, and God stops and says, those fig leaves aren't going to work. And he gives them an animal skin to cover themselves. Now think of this. How do you get an animal skin? Well, in order for you to get an animal skin, an animal has to die. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that in the Old Testament, there were animal sacrifices that were made to cover sin. And and those animal sacrifices were pointers to Jesus, who John the Baptist would say, he's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And so here's what you have. Let's, let's, let's start at the beginning. You have God making using killing animals to get animal skins to cover Adam and Eve, which is a foreshadowing of the animal sacrifices, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And so what God is doing with Adam and Eve is saying, if you want your inadequacy covered, if you want your shame and your guilt and all that, if you want to be accepted and applauded for for, for warts and hall, then there's only one way to do that, and that is in Jesus, because he's the one who knows you and loves you and died for you and makes you acceptable to him. That's what's happening when he gives them animal skins. Um, Isaiah 61, verse 7. Instead of your shame, did you catch that? Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of your disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. A couple verses later, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me, got that? He's clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed, arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Let's stop there. So he, he's clothed me with garments of salvation and given me his robe of righteousness. That's the garment, that's the picture of the gospel that God gives each one of us. That we, you, are accepted. Jesus knows the real you and your flaws. He loves you. Because he knows you exactly the way you are. But what is this? Let's sort of dig into this thought. What we really want is to be known and accepted and to have freedom from shame. And what's that do? Well, a couple things. One, it should cause us to worship. Two, it should allow us to not have to keep finding skins, fig leaves, I mean, to put on. We can 
can put down overwork or overspending or looking a certain way or acting a certain way or dressing a way or presenting some image. You can put that down and go, I'm accepted in Jesus. I don't have to keep making this something to cover me to make me acceptable. I'm already accepted in him. And then three, worship does not make us unfaithful. Say, I'm a good neighbor because I'm faithful. I don't have to keep finding all the flaws in other people because I've been accepted in Jesus. I don't have to feel better about myself because you suck, you know? I can just be like, okay, I'm good in Jesus and he loves me the way I am. So then I can be happy for you as you are the way you are and he loves you and you're warts and all. And I don't have to find all the problems with you. Jesus, I pray for us. I pray that each of us would be able to be honest with you. I think that's what we all need, God, is to be honest with you about our inadequacies, about our own sense of shame, our own sense of guilt and condemnation, our own sense we don't even like ourselves, that we could be honest about that. And then we could run to you and get our mind and heart wrapped around this idea that in Jesus we're loved, and in Jesus we're accepted, and in Jesus we're forgiven. God, I'm positive that we're not going to get that unless you come into our hearts. You're going to have to open our hearts to that news because we've heard it before and it hasn't made much difference. So I pray that somehow in your power, the thing that only you can open our hearts and we'd get around that idea that in Christ we're loved and accepted and forgiven and that we are forgiven. We love you, Jesus. You're our hope. You're our light. You're our salvation. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song.